Well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks Podcast, where it is my pleasure to introduce an incredibly talented team of thought leaders and innovators who are at the forefront of reinventing the way retail companies and channels make business decisions today. Hybris mantra is data has a better idea, and since its inception in 2015, Hybris introduced world's first AI solutions leveraging retail genome, its proprietary algorithm networks and prescriptive analytics with the goal to automate business decisions and help retail companies increase their returns on retail space investment. Hybris spun out of Data61 and is backed by the Coca-Cola company. Number 204 in the Deloitte 2018 Asia-Pacific Technology Fast 500 ranking, Hivery has been repeatedly recognized as an Australian startup to watch for, and last year, Export Council of Australia awarded Hivery for its contributions to the international trade and New South Wales economy. And you know how it goes from here. Today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Carlos Aya, machine learning product lead here at Hivery. In this episode, Carlos is going to share with us how mathematical models can help solve real-world problems. But before we jump into that, here's a little bit of background and some quick facts about Carlos. Back in Colombia, Carlos pursued his bachelor's in mathematics, computer science, and engineering. After moving to Australia about 17 years ago, Carlos pursued his master's degree in information technology. Later, Carlos worked on image analysis, and with his experience, he approached the University of New South Wales to pursue his doctorate. And from here, Carlos is going to take it away and share more about the research pertaining to his PhD in statistics. Apart from my work at Highbury, I'll be doing a PhD in statistics and uh, and applying uh, some methods uh, called wavelets. It's um, something that is derived and came from the field of signal processing. And I'm also applying uh, nearest neighbors. Basically, I'm putting together these two things, the, the concept of having a faithful approximation to your data versus the spatial properties, uh, how the data is distributed in space, but uh, with a completely different angle. Because these two fields have been, of course, evolved for many years, 20, 30 years, probably the least. Signal processing is, is, is quite old as well in mathematics. So it's quite exciting. It's quite exciting seeing new stuff coming out of the computer, actually. For how long have you been working towards your PhD? Oh, uh, yes, good, good question. I actually started doing my PhD almost eight years ago because I'm a part-time student at UNSW. So it has taken quite a long time. And uh, I started doing uh, first working on image analysis and wavelets. Um, but uh, with my supervisor, Professor Spiridon Penev, uh, we started looking at uh, a related problem from that. And this is how we ended up using nearest neighbors. Basically, there is a new properties that you can exploit uh, using the distribution of nearest neighbors around a point. And uh, with that, you, you can actually get uh, interesting insights. On top of that, kind of the next step is that because in, in my research, we are finding the square root of a distribution of, of a probability. Uh, when you think about the square root, you can actually create, imagine these objects in a space. 
kind of, right? I know it's hard to imagine, but the nice thing about this is because it's the square root, usually what mathematicians do is they, they take those objects and they calculate the square, like you do when you are calculating the distance in a field. So you can kind of do the same. The thing is that now you take the square root and you square it. And that creates a notion of a metric in the, in the space of all the possibilities that you are considering. One thing is to say, okay, this, this kind of metric is kind of odd. I don't know what's going on. But this metric is actually a sphere. That gives you a lot of insight in terms of what's happening. Kind of the next step that uh, we are doing is that we are taking those ideas kind of the, to the next level, and you can apply those things even beyond wavelets in the, let me put it, quote-unquote, traditional statistics, and solve problems in a creative way that they weren't solved before. So I have a lot of questions now. <laughs> First and foremost, I would love to hear more about some of the most recent findings and applications that you have been exploring. In terms of applications, we're working again, going back to image analysis. So I'm at the moment in the in, in experimental phase, trying out these uh, high dimensional uh, probability distributions and spherical <laughs> hypersphere spaces. Uh, one of my, my other uh, supervisor, uh, Jerry Jennings, he actually used these similar techniques to redefine correlation coefficients between variables and actually extracting all those classical examples and how this new technique actually is able to detect correlation that we weren't able to see before. I can communicate how amazing this is. It's basically, imagine you have 1,000 points, and you want to figure out whether or not 1,000 points that are related to two variables, and you want to figure out whether or not these two variables are independent of each other in those 1,000 points. So if you are able to picture the points, then you see the examples in Wikipedia. You can say, oh, yes, this looks correlated. You can see a straight line, or you see a circle or something. But if you are talking about something which is high-dimensional, four dimensions, five dimensionals, or brain cannot do it. So this is where statistical methods, if you are able to craft some sort of a mathematical argument around those numbers, can, out of these 1,000 points, which are in a five-dimensional space, you craft one single number that tells you whether or not these five variables are correlated or not. That is kind of the stuff that uh, you, you, you see and say, wow, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. How do you hope to apply these mathematical models to solve real-world problems? Have you found that your research findings have been applicable to your time here at Hivory and possibly beyond Hivory and of interest to someone else? And if so, I'd enjoy hearing more details about that. We were actually, we just discussing with my one of my colleagues at Hivory, with Alvaro, that we could apply nearest neighbors regression to one of our problems. And uh, we were actually discussing ideas that could be applicable from my, let's say, humble area of research into, into this particular problem. And even beyond that, the, the other methods I discussed in terms of being able to solve problems using a problematic statistical distributions. That's the other stuff that I'm interested to work in. 
So that will be probably beyond, uh, um, maybe maybe beyond hybrid and maybe of interest to someone else. Most people, when we do a machine learning and a statistics, most of the time you bring your assumptions to the table. You assume that the data is kind of nice. The most common assumption is that your data is or your errors, for instance, are normally distributed. Means that when you see your errors plotted, they look like a bell curve shape. This is what's called, you know, a probability distribution. You see your different values distributed with these kind of frequencies. But there are certain pathological cases that don't work. Simply don't work. You try to apply your algorithm, you put your data, and your algorithm doesn't converge. It doesn't give you a number. You put your algorithm, with, uh, run it with this data, gets one number, put another data, gets another number, and you don't know what's going on. One thing is could be that, of course, your model is kind of wrong. And another possibility is that although the model may be right, the underlying distribution is not nice. And there are certain distributions which are not nice. And the algorithms that I've been developing with my supervisors, they actually are able to work with these pathological distributions that come out, for instance, when you try to do certain analysis in astrophysics. The Cauchy distribution is kind of common in, in, in certain applications. And it's one of those pathological distributions that you try to apply an algorithm to them, a machine learning algorithm, and it doesn't work. So what is the next big problem that you're hoping to solve using wavelets? Using wavelets, I use the traditional methods and wavelets. I know that the field also has evolved in the last 10 years, and you can actually have different ways to, to slice your data. And these slices can be irregular. This is kind of the latest theory in the last five years. And I know that my methods work on these kind of more general scenarios because I have tried them and they, they work. But I haven't actually exploited that to being able to use the full generality of the method in pre-grid methods. That's kind of one of my, my goals because I believe that then with that in mind, you can actually start bringing wavelets to become mainstream most people work today with the traditional neural networks. Neural networks are the same as wavelets. They are universal approximators. So basically, they can bend and take the shape of the object that you want to model. The nice thing about wavelets is that it comes from signal processing. It has a very strong mathematical foundation, so you know how they work. Neural networks is based kind of on some sort of geometrical heuristics about the way you optimize your problem, but it is not able to capture the geometry. If you try to apply neural networks, and you do, yes, you get fantastic results, but people are still kind of puzzled about how the, the network can actually be fooled at times quite easily. There are cases in which people are able to put a, a little bit of noise in certain pictures and the neural networks initially say, yes, this is a cat. You change pixels one uh, here and there, and now you can make the neural networks to predict any other object. And uh, of course, that's not nice. Wavelets and this uh, stuff that comes from signal processing, they have a very strong uh, foundation in terms of uh, how you can actually manipulate them. And in that sense, it will give you I hope uh, once we are you are able to apply this thing up to wider problems, we'll give you a better understanding of what actually the solution is doing. Carlos, 
You have now lived both in Colombia and Australia for long periods of time. What kind of experience you were able to carry across when you crossed the border? I actually did a little bit of work on um, organizations and kind of having a little bit of idea about how organizations work and the different way that you can actually do and manage change. Uh, so apart, of course, from the pure software experience that I had over there that uh, you can carry across when you cross the border into another country, I think having that uh, perspective of looking a little bit beyond your computer and looking a little bit beyond your, your software and see the broader impact of what you're doing in terms of within an organization, I think was a really eye-opener for me in that sense. Carlos, you joined Hivery back in May 2018. Could you share a little bit more about how did this opportunity come onto your radar? I was kind of working as a software engineer, and of course, uh, I kind of tried to find roles with a slightly bigger component in mathematics. Then I started doing my PhD, and later on, a few years later, it happened that machine learning and data science also was becoming a trend of the day. So I started moving into that direction, and I had a, a few roles as a, as a data scientist. And then the opportunity to work in Hybrid to actually work uh, with this product that we are building and almost uh, outside the door we have at the moment, which is promotional effectiveness. I thought that that opportunity was fantastic because it was not just working on one algorithm or working on the software part, but actually taking a, you know an integral part of the software, the whole picture, looking and interacting with the customer and getting the product across and converting this fantastic research that the researchers in Hyvery did into something that you can actually put in front of customers. There is a considerable distance between R&D and a production system. And uh, I, thought that, I thought that that was challenge was worth taking and I did. Now that you have mentioned promotional effectiveness tool, could you please explain in simple terms what that tool is and how it is meant to help consumers? At the moment, we're working with a bottler here in Australia, one of the major bottlers. And it's equally applied to also to other manufacturers working on the fast-moving consumer goods. Basically, what happens is that one of the main drivers of consumer behavior are promotions, among other factors. And people, and as a manufacturer and someone who wants to put your products in the shelf, uh, you know, in one of the major retailers, you need to go to the table and negotiate with them price reductions, promotions, all the promotional activities, whether or not the product goes in display, whether or not that promotion is going to appear in the, in the, in the weekly catalog, and some other factors like uh, what happens if I put this product in promotion, what happens with the other products? That effect is called cannibalization as well. So what we are now have is that after running this machine learning algorithm and, and being trained based on the data that we got, you can actually go to the screen and say, well, what will happen if I remove this promotion and put that to shelf? And what will happen if instead I take this promotion from shelf and I put a promotion? What is the net effect? of that combination of changes to my overall return of investment. So, of course, there are different metrics. You can see what the retailer is probably gaining or losing from that change. 
You can probably also put a, a incorporate the effect of display, putting that second product on display as well. And all those things you can actually give you a, a simulated live model of how the consumer behaves according to your promotional activities. So of course, of course, Milena, the impact is humongous because if you are able to predict with much accurately what the impact is and how you are going to affect other products, so you can you you can actually manage not not just plan the, your return on investment, but you will have even also kind of a secondary um, goals like improving your inventory management and and logistics, because if we do put a promotion. And you're thinking this promotion is fa- is fantastic. It's going to generate a I don't know 250 impact increase o- over demand. And at the end of the day, because of cannibalization, it's not that great. You are not actually hitting your goal there. The the retailer is going to come back to you and say, "Look, I have a bunch of product in my warehouse. What do we do?" So in that sense, it's of, of course uh, I have a much much bigger impact in, in several areas as well. What stage is the promotional effectiveness tool currently at? Well, uh, Hybrid did actually with uh, one researcher that was working with us one year ago. Uh, and he actually moved to the U.S. to do a PhD. He's working on health, I think, in machine learning. We put these models and we develop a kind of a proof of concept for this bottler. And um, they, we basically proved to, to, to this bottler that it was possible to improve their own predictions for for a margin of 40% or so. But we took a very small sample of the whole product suite that they have. So now we basically took that research piece and we start expanding it. They can say, we actually, that's fantastic. These five products, fantastic. We want to take these 20 something products into these models. And of course, um, one thing is to have one model that you craft your data and, and clean by hand. And another different thing is to do the cleaning automatically every day that you get new data every week. Along that path, we enrich the product with the different KPIs that they can actually use, not just a national level, but a state level. We enrich the product from having one model for this uh, quote-unquote tiny by products to have several models working together to have better prediction across the board for these 20 products, all based on the same kind of, dare to say, sound economical principles like price elasticity and effect on demand, etc. But on a much, I dare to say, much bigger scale. How can consumers be expected to use this tool? The idea is that you gave us your promotional calendar you kind of tell us what sort of, say, sensible goals are in terms of uh, changing your channels, margin, the number of promotions you can actually put in place, etc. You put these business rules as well into the optimizing engine. And at the end of the day, uh, you can you can hit the optimize button and the system will tell you, okay, our recommendation is change this promotion here to a shelf this shelf into this promotion, this this promotion from this depth to this depth, etc. Five, seven, or ten changes across the calendar year, and we, by doing that, you will increase your margin or your net profit or something by this uh, percentage. 
So of course that's kind of the the ultimate goal and that's what we want we want to achieve in the next year. How much longer do you expect it to take before the promotional effectiveness tool can go to market and be available for a wider customer base? We actually have heard and we are at the moment negotiating a proof of concept for another company that also moves into this uh, fast-moving consumer goods uh, sector. And I, I've heard that there are a couple of companies interested in the U.S. as well. Because because every time we share those, our story with promotional effectiveness, people say, you know what you're doing, you know, it's just a hit the optimize button. And we say, no, you cannot optimize based on your data. You need to put business rules in place. And it's kind of also a statistical reason for that. When you want to optimize actions, there are certain actions that are already optimal and you don't see the causation effect in the data. So you need to tell us what sort of stuff you already know that, that, that work and doesn't. And you need to put that into the model as well. And when we share our story about this business rule, we crafted around 20-something business rules at the beginning of this year. People say, oh, yes, it's exactly, that's exactly what I've been telling, you know, telling my other potential providers about. Because it's not just putting a demand forecasting. You need also need to put the business logic, the business knowledge into the tool to be able to generate sensible, actionable calendars. So how many rules can concurrently be applied for an algorithm to run successfully? Good question. I think at the end, we've, we use around five hardcore rules in the sense that they are basic and they are able to play with another seven. The other one we put kind of a default values and we just let the algorithm run with those. Uh, you also need to negotiate with your with your customer what sort of stuff is really flexible and what sort of is you, you can just use kind of a default setting because you don't you don't want to think much about it. But whereas some other stuff you actually need to say, oh, I actually want to play with this rule. So we actually run sense a sensitivity analysis on the optimization algorithm itself, and we were able to prove that uh, experimentally that our approach and our algorithm were, were actually consistent, that you were not going to get a completely different optimization set if you keep your same rules, you keep the same initial promotional calendar, and you have a slightly different model because you train your model with the data you have next week. Is there an ultimate optimization target? When we crafted these uh, constraints, a business constraints, we also put in place different optimization targets and even a mixture of targets. Because you could you could basically run this uh, optimization algorithm and say, look, optimize my profit. Uh, the system automatically trying out, uh, I, I think we figured out the number was around 60,000 combinations in 30 seconds. And at the end it says, okay, this is the best calendar according to the optimization strategy. But optimization for this target, your profit. But then you optimize your profit and you may look at the retail margin and it's actually decreasing by quite a margin. And in that sense, of course, you cannot take that to the table because they are going to say, no, of course they want to to win as well. So you can actually start mixing targets. And in that sense, uh, the optimization approach that we took is quite flexible. You can say, uh, for instance, optimize my profit 
but never cut a retailer margin. So those are the kind of business constraints that you can, you can put in place. Or you can put a mixture of saying, I want to optimize a mixture of my profit and the retailer margin. I will, I will allow the retailer margin to go down in some products as long as the overall margin for, the, for my channel increases as well. The amount of possibilities that are actually potential solutions is, is greater than the atoms of the universe. Literally, you have 20 products, you have 50 weeks, so you have 1,000 possibilities, sales you can play with. For each sale, you can put, say, five different promotions. So it's a humongous number, two to the power of 5,000 or something like that, which is bigger than the atoms of the universe. So in that sense, as, as I say, when we are able to say to this customer, look, this is based on your business rule, an optimized calendar in 30 seconds is amazing. My colleague that worked on that, eh, Alvaro, actually, he said, well, maybe we let it run longer. Let's see if we can actually improve the results. And no, the, the algorithm was quite robust. In the first 30 seconds, it gives you a very good answer. The next part of this podcast episode will take a slightly different tangent and focus more on data science and software engineering fields. And to start off, I would like to share with you some of the findings I came across not long ago pertaining to the inception of data science as a field. In the early 2000s, companies were rushing to capitalize on the potential of utilizing data and driving businesses forward, so there was a lot of data, but a scarcity of special talents because no university degree was being offered and neither did their organizational role exist back then. So the term data scientist was actually coined in 2008. Data scientists became prominent because of the availability of massive data, but no ability to utilize it by organizations. So organizations were striving to bring some structure to the formless data sources. So that's how the data scientist job position was actually founded. And um, data scientists back then came from a diversity of backgrounds, from astrophysics to biology, etc. So they don't come from one discipline, but two things that those people had were strong data and computational focus and the ability of associative thinking. So 10 years ago, data scientists were required to be able to write code and have an intense curiosity and strong interpersonal skills, which I think is still applicable today. So how would you recommend both data scientists and software engineers to write the code to facilitate the creation of a bridge? I think, I think the data scientist needs to be able to explain what he or she is achieving in the model in plain English. Because, yes, because uh, I know that we love our science, we love our maths, we love our stats, we love our machine learning, and you can do a lot of the complex stuff, but you are going to pass on that to an engineer or you are going to wear another hat. But uh, the problems in engineering are different. As I say, you need to make sure that your code actually does what it's supposed to do. And in order to have that assurance, you are probably going to write tests you are going to make sure that it performs well. Maybe an approach that you took uh, when you were doing research with five products 
was just fine putting everything into memory and getting the sorting the data in memory was just fine. But now you need to sort your data on the cloud. And it's not just five product, it's 20. And it's just not just one year, it's three years. And that creates a scaling problem. And you need to be able to communicate to the engineers what your model is achieving so they can help you to improve the performance of the model. And engineers, of course, they know maths come on. And I, I dare to say that one of the reasons that people complain about statistics a lot is that you can bring all these terminology from your field, but you need to be able to translate that terminology into plain English so, so people can understand and, and, and help you achieve the goal of moving those things into production. Carlos, you have transitioned from software engineering field to data science field. What recommendations would you give to someone pursuing a similar path and willing to try themselves in another field? My kind of background in mathematics was more related to logic and programming and the kind of stuff, so very close to software engineering. And coming to start working on the statistics was quite a pain, was really hard. And I would say don't be afraid, at least to do these transitions, to go back to read the basics, calculus, probability. And uh, uh, yes, you can take shortcuts. Shortcuts in the sense, you know, they say, look, this is a tutorial to apply method X, Y, Z. Yes, you can follow the tutorial. You apply the method. 30 minutes later, fantastic. You apply, uh, I don't know, wavelets, K needs neighbors or uh, regression. But uh, you won't get a deeper understanding until you actually read what is happening and why those algorithms work. And the foundations of those things are in probability, calculus, and algebra, linear algebra. So, yeah, we have to go back to, to school in that sense. I will say you have to ask yourself this question. Are you passionate about it? That's central. Because you are going to find a lot of obstacles is going to be hard in the sense that I will start reading again about calculus and multivariate calculus. And believe me, I finished my, my undergrad many years ago. It was an easy experience. You have to be passionate. You have to love it. If you are doing this just because it's the trend, I mean, there are a lot of stuff also very interesting in software engineering as well happening. Yeah, foundations are foundations and you can't get away from that. I can also very much relate to what you just mentioned about quote-unquote falling into the trend. When I started my bachelor's, I ended up switching my majors five times and ended up settling for a business degree, which I'm getting in about two weeks. Um, I bounced from international affairs to mathematics, economics, and so forth, so on. But passion is what it comes down to. Those fields I switched from were not for me. I was not really suited for them. And unfortunately, if you're not passionate, I'm sorry, but you will never work as hard as someone who is. Yeah, and, and in that sense, Milena, I think I consider myself privileged in the sense that I knew that mathematics was my passion since I was a kid, and I followed the passion my whole life. And now mathematics is directly applied in software. I, I couldn't be happier. <laughs>
here comes the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. Stay tuned and till the next time, everyone.